In your time on the internet, you might have seen images like this one. One of a million silent portraits of an unusually shaped hallway or abandoned mall. The lights may be dim or too bright. There are never any people. Whatever you're picturing is correct, but something feels wrong about these images. They are places that you might recognize as familiar, but they are rendered somehow less than real. The trending mind of the internet calls them liminal spaces, denoting everything from computer-generated unreal art to the 4chan mythos of the backrooms. The precise definition is squabbled over, but they are commonly defined as images of spaces that evoke a sense of uncanniness, disorientation, abstract nostalgia, or displacement. All manner of think-piecers and YouTubers have analyzed this phenomenon in a manner well-suited to their respective audiences, and we'll explore a few of those takes, from the thought-provoking to the strictly internet. But I've yet to see this concept interrogated through the lens I will present to you tonight, because I happen to be several years deep in my own wandering through these thresholds, and I finally found a dusty tome lying in the darkness that foretold those initial hallway dreams that sent me inside. If you're new here, my name is Jackie, and I'm the operator of this exploration department. Let me take you through the walls of a world turned inside out. This is the spectacle called the Earth Hotel. joining us on this exciting brand new platform called YouTube, I'll explain what I mean by the Earth Hotel. In 2015, I had a series of dreams with an labyrinth of hotel-like hallways, often occupied by stock figures and other frightened people, and authority agents with malicious intent. Always they were rooms, no exterior to speak of. Set and setting and circumstance changed wildly, but the rooms remained, illogical and suspended in the void, seemingly containing all that was unnatural. I found that this experience was familiar to the more active dreamers among my friends, who spoke of escorting a lost and panicked party through the network of empty structure. One colleague explained that he once met another aware person inside, in some kind of joint lucid dream, and together they instructed a small group of wandering souls, presumably other dreaming people who were lost, to follow them through a hallway of swinging vacant doors. Don't look into the doorways, they said. Just keep running, and follow us. After sprinting away from the lurking presence of a blank homunculus behind them that had been menacing this group of people, the two men turned to see their blind flock staring transfixed into an open room. Before they could rush to escort them on, something indescribable, to quote my friend, came out from the darkness and took them. At this time, I was doing a small podcast about the music around me in the tiny art school town where I lived in the middle of Alabama, and the series of events led me to change the program to focus on these surreal experiences alongside the music, and it became the Earth Hotel. I was heavy into Buddhist mysticism then, and came upon the concept of the bardo, the layers of existence, the dream world being a sub-realm of the waking world contained within it, and intersecting at times with the more ethereal planes. My idea at the time was that our modernization had created a sort of schism within the dream world, being wholly occupied by the contents of modernity, separate from the natural settings of archetypal dreams in the pre-industrial world. I said to my friends like a madwoman, we have done something to our dream world by how we live, by where we fucking sleep, ladies. I stopped being invited to brunch after that. 
Now, I could list a dozen examples of wacky shit that proceeded to happen as I dug into this idea, but just like telling other people your dreams, it's stuff that's only super interesting because I was there in my head. But about 18 months ago, another hotelism appeared online, as they sometimes do, trending alongside the Liminal Spaces hashtag, and I had myself a little moment. The Backrooms is a 2019 creepypasta about an endless series of yellow-carpeted fluorescent hallways, accessible by no clipping out of reality. 4chan used a gaming term for breaking a virtual environment to intuitively produce this concept of a world warped by the manipulation of our global environment. I flipped king shit when I read this. Quickly, a super spoopy lore developed for the backrooms among the various forums where it appears. All the rules and monsters and deeper levels where things get crazy. But the essential idea was there. It was birthed out of the roiling, repressed under it of the internet. Mwah. Like with incels and their skulls, it was right there, like gorgeous irony ambrosia waiting to be supped. The Backrooms wiki even bears the slogan, You've been here before, which lies alongside, but comes well after, the Earth Hotel slogan since 2015, Act like you've been here before. 20 million monkeys and you finally get the whacked out philosophy of a dangerously confident southern trans woman. It was my idea, and I'm suing for those likes, PewDiePie! <laughs> so, cool, that's my story time. And that was about it. I went on getting smacked around by fate and fretfully covering the musical exploits of Birmingham weirdos, and more recently those of political weirdos. I thought about writing on liminal spaces when the trend hit, but there wasn't that much to say besides, it's real, it's all real and mystical, and I thought of it years ago, you guys, for real. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? But then, then I read The Society of the Spectacle, and my bean was officially freaked. This book of axioms, published in 1967, is a terrifying evaluation of capitalism from the culture-jamming head of Guy Debord. Debord was a member of Le Situationiste International, a crafty and radical French collective of philosophers and artists. Basically, Marxism meets Dada. Their predecessors, the Lettristes, pulled a stunt on Easter Sunday 1950, in which they stormed Notre Dame on national live television to recite a legendary rant about the death of God, before the congregation chased them into the Seine River. SI formed out of extant groups including the Lettrists, the London Psychogeographical Association, and the International Movement for an Imaginist Bauhaus. Those French did not fuck about. Along with about a million other factors, the Situationist School of Thought contributed to the 68 uprisings against the de Gaulle government in France. The slogans and epithets from their literature crawled across the nation through graffiti and posters, quotes like, Boredom is counter-revolutionary. We are all undesirables. Reform my ass. No replastering, the structure is rotten. And one of my favorites, concrete breeds apathy. The Society of the Spectacle offers an analysis of how the conditions of capitalism and its series of compromises has warped our occupation of space itself. By reproducing itself within a society mediated by objects, the spectacle is shown to dominate every aspect of our waking and sleeping lives. Not only in the psychogeography indicated by Debord, the annihilation of natural space by regimented streets and structures, but in history, our concept of time, our sensual and conceptual interaction with the world, and everything in it. He lays out a series of arguments that read like ominous and apocalyptic declarations. He mirrors Das Kapital in his opening remark, In modern societies dominated by the current mode of production, life is presented as an immense accumulation of spectacles. 
everything that was directly lived has receded into a representation. The images detached from every aspect of life fuse in a common stream in which the unity of this life can no longer be re-established. Reality considered partially unfolds in its own general unity as a pseudo-world apart, an object of mere contemplation. The specialization of images of the world is completed in the world of the autonomous image, where the liar has lied to himself. When you zoom out just enough, the world appears infinite. When you throw away a plastic bottle and think about where it will end up, in the ocean or a landfill, the mind reels at the acknowledgement of an unfathomable number of global bottles just like it. Global production is a brain-annihilating concept to get your head around, beyond whatever compartment of it you work in, and you do work in one. And anyone who has engaged in online debate or watched Fox News for longer than 10 seconds will recognize the yawning abyss that opens up when one tries to consider the magnitude of illusion at work in the world that sustains this particular arrangement. Quote, the externality of the spectacle in relation to the active man appears in the fact that his own gestures are no longer his, but those of another who represents them to him. This is why the spectator feels at home nowhere, because the spectacle is everywhere. When I found the Society of the Spectacle, it was being held as relief to the high-profile debate between new online politic pundit streamers Destiny and Vosh by the YouTuber Nightmare Masterclass, who read excerpts of the book as commentary on what was a thoroughly confounding and spectacular display of rhetoric. For reference, Destiny is a former competitive gamer, fake left Ben Shapiro type, and Vosh is kind of like Joe Rogan for the terminally online left. You can imagine how that debate went. And as I went through the book and found all kinds of very Earth Hotel statements, that eerie pulling sensation in my gut began in earnest. In the first three pages, Debord fucking slaps you with statements like these. The spectacle is the constant presence of its own justifications. Separation is the alpha and omega of the spectacle. The spectacle is the preservation of unconsciousness within the practical change of the conditions of existence. It is its own product, and it has made its own rules. It is a pseudo-sacred entity. Lived reality is materially invaded by the contemplation of the spectacle, while simultaneously absorbing the spectacular order, giving it positive cohesiveness. Where the real world changes into simple images, the simple images become real beings and effective motivations of hypnotic behavior. Wherever there is independent representation, the spectacle reconstitutes itself. Social space is invaded by a continuous superimposition of geological layers of commodities. So that's a lot to take in. The whole book's like that. Let's turn our eyes back for a moment to the internet. By far, the most viewed discussion of liminal spaces on YouTube is from Solar Sands in his video essay, Liminal Spaces, Exploring an Altered Reality. I really like this video just because it's the quintessential internet take on the subject. And I was going to ask Solar Sands if he wanted to read his excerpts from this video, but he got banned from Twitter for a disgusting and weird remark about baby Mr. Peanut, so I think I'm going to leave him out of everything that I do, personally. But I consider the video as a great secondary source for what the internet means by liminal spaces. When I say very internet, it deals only in the context of what it means on the internet. It's not a multidisciplinary analysis of what it means. Other people do that very well. 
but there are several moments where he touches on pertinent existentialist or spectacular points from within that veil, as it were. He opens by echoing Sartre's paper-cutter example of existence preceding essence. That example to mean a paper-cutter is designed to cut paper. Its form is dedicated to that purpose, and that purpose preceded its being made into a paper-cutter. It was designed. Solar Sand says that everything that you see which is not natural has been designed by human minds and brought into existence. Sartre uses the argument to describe how our existence precedes that essence. We exist first, and then we find and develop what we will be. Solar Sands is describing the background art of Lego kits, which depict bizarre landscapes which appear as a forest or a cityscape or whatever, but with no subject or foreground not really meant to be looked at. The broad implications of the totality of human-designed space, and the profound disruption thereof of our psychogeography, is not especially relevant to an internet analysis of liminality, and it's not explored. His central claim, instead, is that in addition to the nostalgia triggered by these images of empty rooms, the feelings that make this meme so compelling are closely linked with their lack of context. People feel a way about liminal spaces because they evoke feelings of dissociation. Solar Sands makes the claim that this is because the spaces lack the living context implicit in commercial buildings, offices, and residences. He quotes a Tumblr post on the subject. The other spaces feel weird because our brains are hardwired for context. They have no definitive place outside their relationship to the space you are coming from and going to. Reality feels altered here because we're not really supposed to be in them to think about them as their own entities, and when we do, they seem odd and out of place. These observations, all well and good, they're reasonable interpretations, but for me it just kisses the surface of what makes this so fascinating. The fetishism of isolation resonates throughout the liminal spaces hashtag, but I'd like to offer two more specific words, alienation and atomization. Alienation, in Marxist terms, is the result and condition of the separation of workers and what they produce. The factories and fulfillment centers of the world are full of it, comrades. It's used more generally to refer to the omnipresence of our detachment from the world that surrounds us, as we had no influence in its making and organization. The room you live in was built by unknown people, probably an unknown company, lived in by many before you. Its existence is not dependent on you as an individual, though its surface appearance and cosmetic touches may be, and you can change it fundamentally if you might, but you might not have the capability legally or monetarily to do that, even if you could do it physically. Our fates are often prodded about or decided outright for us by some far-flung wielder of an institutional power enforced, incidentally, by an immense and highly organized network of agents armed with state violence, we live in transience. And the depths of transience that are really there, and when I say this part I feel like I sound like some edgy fellow that dressed up like the Joker for Halloween every year, the layers of transience that actually shape our everyday existence, if you sit down and <laughs> try to look at it, it's kind of mind-melting. Solar Sands makes an offhand remark about reproduced commercial spaces, saying, Have you seen what most of America even looks like? Over a fairly famous image passed around online of a densely commercialized area between two interstate on-ramps. We've all seen this place. Overgrown with logos and billboards and gas station marquees. A wholly unnatural and transient space. This is not some niche observation. We do hashtag live in a society. 
Atomization, on another hand, is a form of isolation invoked frequently by Debord. For example, urbanism is the modern fulfillment of the uninterrupted task which safeguards class power. The preservation of the atomization of workers who had been dangerously brought together by urban conditions of production. With the present means of long-distance mass communication, sprawling isolation has proved an even more effective method of keeping a population under control. Factories and halls of culture, tourist resorts and housing developments are expressly organized to serve the pseudo-community that follows the isolated individual right into the family cell. The widespread use of receivers of the spectacular message enables the individual to fill his isolation with the dominant images, images which derive their power precisely from this isolation. And I want to take a second to remember that this was 1967, in which those receivers of the spectacular message he meant were, you know, fashion marquees and one of three television stations and newspapers and magazines. Reproductions of the spectacle may be one or two or three times removed from the recipient, the spectator. The claim that the fascination with these uncanny images are some clean neurological quirk of the brain, a hardwired context machine, as it's claimed by Solar Sands, flies right over the foundation of these buildings and rooms. Without people, why does this mall exist at all? To serve a fleeting commercial need that is just as displaceable as the products and temporary occupants of the space made for that very purpose. When commerce dries up and businesses relocate, the initial emptiness of these spaces are restored, interchangeable, unremarkable, undefined without their manufactured intent, floating in the forgotten realm between one state and the next. It's not a coincidence that the liminal spaces phenomenon emerged amid the ongoing popularity of urban exploration and abandoned spaces in online media. We are attempting to process our existing thoroughly within the spectacle. We were born in it, molded by it, one of the first generations to hold in our hands that stream of images, images detached from every aspect of life that fuse in a common stream in which the unity of this life can no longer be re-established. We do it direct. We make it ourselves. We speak the language of the spectacle, in all the complex navigations that we must make through online space, as it blends miasmically into our understanding of lived reality, which I must remind you is not some apprehendable thing that exists. It is mutable through everyone. Not just what the world looks like and what it does, but what it is. In his follow-up video, Fake Liminal Spaces, Solar Sands makes the addendum remarking on the importance of transitionality in defining liminal spaces. He points to the dedicated subreddit which bears the definition, a liminal space is the time between the what was and the next. It is a place of transition, waiting, and not knowing. Let me make a completely objective and unloaded remark. All economic systems go through life cycles and pass into new ones like slavery into feudalism, into industrial capitalism, through and into neoliberal capitalism. It's not like the page just turns. These are vast, changing, morphing systems that adapt in real time, change in real time over hundreds of years, and coexist within each other, with some dominating and some receding completely. A great turning and blending process happens, which is hindered only by the slow march of change over time, and other interests who vehemently wish to maintain the current arrangement because it's exceptionally beneficial to them. Now, before you report me to the House on American Activities Committee, it's pretty clear that the only reasonable solution to any problem is one that assesses all the present conditions honestly, and them's the breaks. 
basic needs are not being met by either the economic system, or the government which maintains it, and the feeling that produces in a population, not just a feeling but an existential condition, in a population suffering under seemingly unchangeable conditions, has to go somewhere. It's incredibly convenient for, and as Debord argues, an unavoidable outcome of, modern production, for those feelings of isolation to be processed in a way that rationalizes them within the context of the status quo. It's something that we must do to continue living, because them's also the breaks. Maybe it was Robert Reich, I can't remember. It's easier for people to envision the end of the world than a system other than capitalism. One of my favorite essayists on YouTube is Jacob Geller, who has touched the topic of liminality on many sides. In the particular videos, Gaming's Harshest Architecture, Four Short Games About Pain, The Horror of Universal Paperclips and Space Engine, and the achingly gorgeous The Shape of Infinity, Geller references a number of games, works of visual art and literature that use or explore these sprawling displacement zones. In Kitty Horror Show's game Tenement, which is about a tortured apartment complex in a void, an NPC recalls how hotels used to be when he was a child. Yes, there were rooms that would pull the skin right off your bones. Yes, there were rooms that snapped you and ground you up. There were rooms with floor made of spider skin and walls made of wasp bone, where everything stank and buzzed and howled, and you'd come back out broken or not at all. They weren't even all that rare, but it was worth it. You don't believe me. But it was worth the chance to get to be the first to enter a newborn room. Because there was always the chance you'd be the one to find the room, the grand and final room, the one where the hotel's heart and mind and eyes and soul were. You'd get to be the one to sink your knife into its brain and kill the hotel for good and all, and the city would remember you forever. One last example. PBS Idea Channel was an early stalwart of high-quality thinky video YouTube. Their 2016 episode, Are All Hotels the Same Place, explores the liminal qualities of hotels in particular spaces, designed to appear like home with all its amenities, but which swallow up your existence into non-memory the instant you leave it. You arrive with the intent to store your body in a threshold zone, and you depart, as Idea Channel quotes writer Joanne Walsh, not as a guest so much as a ghost. The most chilling observation by Debord, in my opinion, is his assessment of spectacular time and history. He describes time under the spectacle as an ever-expanding present, a suspension of unfolding history. Our orientation within time, totally directed by our rationalized place within it, where history doesn't so much progress as it does obsess. Quote, Pseudo-cyclical time is the time of consumption of modern economic survival of increased survival, where daily life continues to be deprived of decision and remains bound, no longer to the natural order, but to the pseudo-nature developed in alienated labor. And thus, this time naturally re-establishes the ancient cyclical rhythm which regulated the survival of pre-industrial societies. Pseudo-cyclical time leans on the natural remains of cyclical time, and also uses it to compose new homologous combinations. Day and night, work and weekly rest, the recurrence of vacations. In its most advanced sector, concentrated capitalism orients itself towards the sale of completely equipped blocks of time, each one constituting a single unified commodity which integrates a number of diverse commodities. In the expanding economy of services and leisure, this gives rise to the formula of calculated payment in which everything's included. Spectacular environment, 
the collective pseudo-displacement of vacations. Hang on, I have to plug in my phone. When I try to peer into the future of my city, Birmingham, I see the plans of the rich sprawling across the whole of it, with their designs of a pleasure city, a forest for growing condos and corporate housing, and vertical single-family housing, whatever that means. The controlling wealthy interests here are courting the lords of tech and tourism to replace the prevailing orientation of the city, to change it to suit their own developmental plane. I don't think these people are, in every case, a sniveling Montgomery Burns scenario. I, you know, this is not a Neil Breen movie where all the bad people stand around and say, I love exploiting the workers so that we can build expensive condos and price out the poor people. But their actions and their words, and more importantly, their beliefs about what the world is that you don't know, there are more than even the spoken and unspoken justifications of their actions that they hold. There's all this debate about, well, is so-and-so knowledgeably doing bad, or are they unconsciously doing what they think is right, but that's just the lie of the ruling class? Which is it? What is it? It's all of it. The chill that runs down through me when I look at liminal spaces echoes out of my feet and into the sidewalk, packing down more energy into the concrete, already pounded down by innumerable cars and pedestrians. It is the most surreal recognition of a spiraling puzzle inside of which we must strive to make our world in which to live, not that which will live to enclose us. It seems incontrovertible that the economy should serve humanity and not the other way around. The takeaway I wish for in this incomplete conversation is this. We fight, we argue, we scrabble against each other to claim whatever partial victories that can be claimed in our survival by design. These victories of slightly improving our present situation relative to the other people very close to that situation are seemingly swallowed whole by the ongoing creep of spectacular life, foreign, displaceable, irrelevant to those of the rich, who similarly compete with each other relatively and miss out on the forest for the trees. This all seems pretty despair-inducing, and it is on first glance. But in the last pages, Dubault presents a widely accepted solution that has been held in consensus in the movement since well before 1967. Citizen councils and direct management of affairs by communities is the answer, in which decisions are made by a majority vote by the people involved. It's how labor unions are run most successfully, head and shoulders above other forms of organization. The great question beneath the illusion of the spectacle is simply one of organization and prioritization. The world that winks from us from beyond that septic veil is one where the human mission is not only the forefront, but the goal in itself, the expression of our human time in the service of our specialized becoming. The victory that is to be claimed is not abstract or revolutionary on some grand scale. It is not utopian. <laughs> it is the victory that we claim any day that we may live for ourselves. There is much outside of that. There is the grand unleashing of human potential without its unnecessary bounds. By living for ourselves, not in a selfish way, but so that we may provide for the gorgeous expression of our individual loves and those of others, for a world that will build upon them. Do we rip up concrete in the foundations of the establishment board by board? Well, fuck yes, Gorge. But the foundation we start building upon now, that supersedes it, is the bedrock of solidarity and humanity. What would you do 
if you didn't have to pay rent anymore? Not just that, what would you do if your time was yours? And if your answer to that is people would just fuck off, never get anything done, turn on each other, everything would turn into anarchy. Sorry, I had to lug my giant scare quotes out of the corner for that one. If that's what you think people would do if they were just allowed to live, you probably don't think very much about people. You probably don't have very much confidence in yourself. And I feel bad for you because it's only better for everyone. And anywhere you choose to look at it, honestly, displays that. I am late for my meeting at the docks. I'll end with this. The building that rises on that bedrock of solidarity, cooperation, and humanity will no longer be a series of mystifying and haunting spaces, no longer a tableau of unnerving nostalgia for something that once appeared to us as simple but we know to be more complicated, but instead a dazzling monument of human passion, a nourishing hanging garden of recognition of what we dream of living for. I want to see that day. But first we have to keep the world from bursting into flames. And I will be here with you every step of the way. Good night, and good luck.